0: Good morning, if you have your Bible, would you please find 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Today is the day after Christmas. Christmas. And now that I have a one year old, I feel like I've crossed over into a a new season of life because what I was doing two nights ago was putting together toys for my son. Something that I've never thought I've had to do before. (laughs) But it it gave me a, a, a new sense of wonder. Thinking about my own son being in the world experiencing the blessings of Christmas, that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelled among us. And we celebrate. Christmas because Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And as the season of Advent comes to a close, I want us to think about what Jesus left his church with between his first and his second coming. Specifically, and this may seem a little interesting to you as you see on the screen, I want to think together with you this morning about the Lord's Supper. Now we're not taking the Lord's Supper today. We took it last week, uh, but we we should think through why we do what we do, right? A lot of us grew up in Baptist churches. I've been in Baptist churches my whole life, and I remember uh, well just regularly getting together to take the bread and the cup. But other than times when I've actually received the elements of the Lord's Supper, I don't think I've really thought that much about it, and so. What do we think about the Lord's Supper? What happens when the church gathers together to eat the bread and drink the cup? Where should we locate the Lord's Supper in this grand story of Scripture that God has given to us? What is God doing in the life of the church when we participate in this ordinance together? You heard, hopefully last week, Pastor Brian talk about how we as a church are going to move to take the Lord's Supper more often. Every third Sunday morning, every fifth Sunday evening... So what is it that we should be thinking about or saying to one another or doing or even expecting as we partake together? I want to attempt to try to answer and clarify some of these things for us today. So all of us have probably heard two very true, very clear things about the Lord's Supper. First, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance, meaning it's something that God has commanded to us in Christ for the church to observe. It's an ordinance of Jesus, just like baptism that we got to witness a few minutes ago. And number two, we all know and affirm that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the death of Jesus for sinners. It's commemorative. It's to elicit memory in our minds and in our souls. But I wanna argue this morning that the Lord's Supper is more than those things. Not less, but, but more. It isn't just something that we do, But rather, the Lord's Supper Supper is something where God participates as well to make the body of Christ more and more into the image of Christ. So let's read our text this morning. We kind of give you the the lay of the land. We have a lot to cover. So uh, we're going to read our text, and then we'll kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible to set the table, pun intended, as we think about the Lord's Supper. So let's read. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant In my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you join with me in prayer? God in heaven, we know that your word is powerful. We believe that your word is authoritative. And so, Lord, we come together as the people of God to sit under your word to be transformed by that word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, help me, use me as your mouthpiece to communicate your truth for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to take this morning into two parts. Part number one is going to be the Lord's Supper in Scripture. And so I hope you have plenty of paper and your pencils are sharpened or you have plenty of uh, space on your note app uh, because we're going to fly through the entirety of the Bible. Uh, this maybe excite some of you. It may cause some of you to automatically have your eyes glaze over in slumber, but that's okay. We are going to walk through the storyline of Scripture because we need to understand that the Lord's Supper doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It's, it's not just something that just plops into the New Testament with no context. And so what we're going to do this morning first is what we call biblical theology, In other words, we're wanting to trace a theme or an idea through the scriptures and see how it develops together. And that will prepare us for when we think more specifically at the Lord's, look more specifically at the Lord's Supper a bit later. So we're going to look at six meals in the scriptures to see where the Lord's Supper is and how we should understand where it should be. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to fly through this, so it'll be on the screen, you can just take pictures on your phone or write notes really fast. Um, Number one, God provides nourishment and his presence from the beginning. So back in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates the heavens and the earth and all the things within the earth and creates Adam and Eve and puts them in his garden, they are sustained and nourished by their creator. Let me just read to you from Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse good and evil, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So in this text, we see two big things. God plants a garden. (laughs) He, He plants the garden and causes all of the trees that bear fruit to come into existence for the man and the woman that he then places in the garden. And God causes this river to flow out of Eden So all of the food and all of the water that Adam and Eve would require has been given to them by God himself. And we also know from the story of Genesis, we read it later in Genesis chapter 3, that God seems to be particularly present with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis 3 says, so I love this quote from Wayne Grudem. It should be on the screen. It, it's kind of what should set our focus as we think about meals in scripture. From the very beginning. Look at listen to this. Since there was no sin in that situation and since God had created them for fellowship with himself and to glorify himself, every meal that Adam and Eve ate would have been a meal of feasting in the presence of the Lord. In other words, what Grudem is telling us and what we see in the beginning of scripture, is that God intends to feast and nourish his people and to be present with them in the feast. Now this is a beautiful picture that very quickly becomes totally shattered and broken by sin. And in Genesis chapter three, we know that God has to banish Adam and Eve out of that garden, out of that place of feasting, out of that place of nourishment and sustenance. But he provides another way. He provides a covenant. He provides redemption. He provides a covering for his people. So if you flip over to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, we'll look at the second meal and the second point, which is this. God institutes the Passover to declare his salvation. The people of Israel had just witnessed God's strong and mighty hand overthrowing and and ridiculing the gods of Egypt. And as they prepare to experience the last plague that will be their seal of salvation and redemption from Pharaoh, they take the Passover. But listen in Exodus chapter 12, and verse 14, what the Lord says through Moses about the Passover. This day shall be for you a memorial day or a day of remembrance, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So, what Moses is saying, what God is saying through Moses, is that this Passover meal is to be a memorial year in and year out. You, my people Israel, ought to remember me and remember my salvation for you, my redemption of bringing you out of slavery, bringing you out of death in Egypt into the land flowing with milk and honey. The Passover is this huge sign in the Old Testament for redemption for God's people. And they're to celebrate that Passover as a memorial or as a remembrance. Now, if you're with me in, Genesis, in Exodus 12, flip over just one page to Exodus 13 in verse 8. Exodus 13, verse 8. God is telling Moses to explain to the people of Israel What should we be thinking about as we take this Passover meal? In the generations to come, what what kind of things should we be saying to one another? And in verse 8, it says this, You shall tell your son on that day. Why do we do this? You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand. And as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. This is a beautiful picture of a father telling his son, why are we taking this meal? It's because of what the Lord did for me. But what we maybe miss in this text isolated from itself is the history of the people of Israel year after year. Generation after generation, centuries in the future from the Passover event, when a son asks his father, why are we taking this meal? The father is to say to his son, it's because of what the Lord did for me. For me. It's not for what the Lord had done for our ancestors. It's for me that the idea of remembrance and memorial is this embodied event of taking our lives and placing it back into the event of redemption. And and what Moses and the Israelites ought to embody and remember having as a memorial between their eyes is that God has seen fit to save them, to redeem them. To bring them out of darkness and into light. To bring them out of oppression and into freedom. He is to be remembered year after year, day after day, Passover after Passover. Now, one more thing here that's important for us. In both of our texts about the Passover, we hear the language of memorial and remembrance. So you should flip over to Exodus chapter 20, just a couple of pages later. I told you we're going to go all through the Bible today. Exodus chapter 20, this beautiful section in Exodus chapter 20 where we receive the Ten Commandments, the the moral law of God, the statute of God's character that's to be continued forever and ever. And at the end of the Ten Commandments, in verse 24, Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, about halfway through the verse, God says something curious. He says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So the people of Israel have received this Passover as a sign to remember God's salvation. And here God is saying, when I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. Something more than a mere memorial is taking place. Something more than a commemorative act to think back about a past event is taking place. No, God is coming to dwell with his people to bless them at the meal that he's given to them. Where God is remembered in the meal of the covenant, he comes and he comes to bless. Third meal. Exodus 24, just a couple of pages over. And our third meal is, is this. God confirms the old covenant with a meal and with his presence. So in Exodus chapter 24, we've received the Ten Commandments. The, the law has been given to the people of Israel. And at the beginning of, verse, of, of chapter 24, Moses is reading the law to the people of Israel. And he takes some blood. He takes some blood from the altar And then starting in verse 7, look at what he does. It says, Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. They are confirming to the Lord. We will agree to this covenant. We will do all that he has said we will do. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This covenant is sealed in blood, the blood of the sacrifice. Verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, meaning they went up to the mountain, Mount Sinai. Look at verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This covenant that God has given to the people of Israel through his servant Moses, sealed in the blood of the sacrifice, is confirmed with a meal and with his very presence among his people. The way in which God comes to dwell with us is through his covenant with us. And when he enters into covenant with us, he is not absent. No, he is present. And he is present to bless. Both parties are here. God receives worship. God's people receive nourishment. And they receive blessing. All right, we're gonna flip all the way to the New Testament now. Matthew chapter 26, our fourth meal this morning. Jesus institutes a better meal for a better covenant in the Last Supper. And we know that Jesus, John tells us, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the once for all sacrifice. And when he goes to take the Passover meal with his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, he does something radical. He changes the meaning of the Passover from a past event to something that is about to happen. And instead of calling on the disciples to remember what God had done in the time of of the exodus in Egypt, Jesus points to himself in the Passover meal. Find with me Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it in my Father's kingdom. So the big idea that we need to see here is this radical shift from the old covenant, the people of Israel under Moses, to the new covenant, the people of God in Christ. They're no longer looking back as their redemption event to Israel in Egypt, they're looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who's come to take away the sins Of the world. Matthew gives us a a real account of the Last Supper, but Luke, which I think is what Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 11, our actual text for this morning, Luke makes sure to mention that the disciples were told by Jesus to take this bread and to take this cup in remembrance of Jesus, as a memorial to Jesus. All right, fifth. Meal. Fifth meal. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The church observes the Lord's Supper as an ordinance. So in the book of Acts, we have the the transition from the Gospels to the age of the church. After the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches a phenomenal, miraculous sermon, and by the power of the Spirit, thousands of people come to faith and there at the very beginning, the, the birth of the church, we see some key things. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, just, just that verse, we see the disciples begin to practice certain rhythms of what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be in Christ together as his body? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship To the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, the apostles' teaching, what they received from the Lord Jesus, the fellowship, the reality that we are now the family of God, united together by faith, prayers, we we petition the Lord, we ask for boldness, we intercede on behalf of others, we call on the Lord to do what we cannot do, but we also gather together, Acts 2 says, to break bread. To break bread, same phrase that is used when Jesus took bread and broke it and then gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So we as the people of God gather together as the church and we remember Christ. We take a memorial of Christ when we break the bread together. You see on the screen, Acts chapter 20, verse seven. It's just another example of the people of God gathering together on the Lord's day to meet, to break bread. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, our text this morning. This is what Paul is trying to tell the church in Corinth. I am only telling you, Paul says, what I received receive from the Lord Jesus and from the apostles. I'm telling you what he did. Now, something that may be, Uh, helpful for us to get some context around is that 1 Corinthians, most scholars would say, was written before the Gospels. So you have this church in Corinth, who doesn't have a New Testament. They haven't, they have the the Hebrew scriptures, they have the Old Testament, they have Genesis to Malachi, but the, the New Testament is being written. The apostles are out doing their work as the apostles. They're writing down this biography of their Lord and Savior Jesus. And as these things are being written, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth saying, Hey, look. When you gather together to take the bread and to take the cup, whatever you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper. Let me tell you what the Lord's Supper is. What I gave you is what I received. And he quotes from the Gospels. He quotes what exactly happens. Jesus, gathering with his disciples, breaking bread, pouring the cup, doing it all in remembrance of me. This supper is the Lord's Supper. And this supper is for the church. So when we gather together as the church to receive the bread and the cup to m- remember Christ and his work on our behalf we're proclaiming something about who God is we're proclaiming something about who we are we're saying that what we have now is newer and better than what the people of God once had they had the type they had the 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 original they had the shadow we have the substance they had sheep and lambs and goats that had to be slaughtered every year. We have a great high priest who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We ha- they had blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat year after year for their sins. We have a Savior whose blood was poured out and cried, it is finished. But Paul says something in verse 26. He says, when you come together to eat of it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. This is the fifth meal. And what Paul is saying, and what I think the scriptures teach, is that the Lord's Supper has an expiration date. There will be a day where we not get, gather together as the church to take this supper. Which brings us to the last meal. All the way in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. The sixth meal. Christ and his bride will enjoy a wedding feast in the new creation. Christ and his bride will enjoy a wedding feast in the new creation. Kevin, you heard, read the text from Isaiah chapter 25, this prophetic verse that points us way into the future when God will overthrow death and he will provide food and drink for his people on the mountain and they will be satisfied. And we read in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. The Lord's Supper is pointing us forward to something that's coming. And the good news of Scripture is that the people of God one day will gather around the table with their bridegroom clothed in the righteousness of the saints and feast in the new creation. They'll be in his presence without sin, without death, without stain, without anything to tarnish the communion that's existing between them and their Lord. This Meal is the end of the supper. This meal, this wedding feast of the Lamb is the the purpose for why we have the Lord's Supper today. So I hope you see that all of these meals from Genesis 2 to Revelation 19 have some common mechanics. As we trace this biblical theme, there's a meal. There's a covenantal relationship. There's blessing, and both parties are present. So that's the first part. We need to move to the second part now. We've seen the Lord's Supper in Scripture, and now I want us to focus back in our text in 1 Corinthians 11 on the Lord's Supper in practice. The Lord's Supper in practice. We've seen it in Scripture. Now what do we do? What do we think? What should we say? What should we expect? Now that we can place that Lord's Supper as a meal in context. We can say some things about it in particular. But I wanna start this section by talking about what the supper is not. There's a lot of churches, there's a lot of denominations, there's a lot of different kinds of groups who have beliefs about the Lord's Supper that if we're not careful, we might start to import into our own theology, our own belief system. So first of all, we need to be clear, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. The Roman Catholic Church erroneously teaches that the supper is a representation of the sacrifice of Christ that we then offer to God, much like a priest offering sacrifices in the temple. But we believe that the Lord Jesus has completed his work on the cross now and forever. Hebrews tells us that he now sits down at the right hand of the Father. No more sacrifice required. We are not appeasing God in the supper. No, he is blessing us. The supper does not include, number two, the physical presence of Jesus. Now, we don't have time to go into a large history lesson about the Protestant Reformation, but suffice to say, this point was a huge point of debate in both the Catholic Church and in the Protestant Church in the 16th century. Catholics argue that the bread and the cup is a big fancy word for us, that those things are transubstantiated or transformed or changed into the real body and blood of Jesus when a priest prays and consecrates the elements. So we have bread, we have a cup, and it looks like bread and cup. It smells, it tastes like bread and cup. But what it really is, Catholics would argue, is the body and the blood of Christ. Lutherans argue that while the bread and cup are not transformed, the body and blood of Christ, the real physical material body and blood of Christ, comes in, with, and under those elements. So you can read Martin Luther, and he talks about the example of sticking an iron in a fire. And then when he pulls it out, he sees that the iron is glowing. It is filled with fire, he says. And in the same way, Luther argues, the bread is still the bread, but it is filled with the body of Christ. Or in a more modern illustration, you might think of taking a sponge and filling it with water. It's still a sponge. Nothing's changed about that sponge, but it is now filled with something else. But this does real damage to the humanity of Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He's not kind of a man and fully God he's fully man and fully God and so if we were to believe or to communicate that the physical body of Christ can be in many places at once we're defining the body of Christ differently than how we define the body of a human and that's a real real danger So we want to avoid distorting the true humanity of Christ. Because if we don't have the humanity of Jesus that we celebrate this Advent season, we don't have a savior. If we don't have a real human who can stand in our place as our substitute, then we don't have a substitute at all. Third thing that the supper is not. The supper does not justify anyone. Again, Catholics claim that the Lord's Supper is a means of saving grace that removes sins and justifies believers merely by the work itself. But we know that the Spirit of God applies the justifying work of the Son to us at our conversion. We're given new hearts. We're adopted into a new family. We're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. We're cleansed by the Spirit in a moment. It's the work of God for sinners who are dead in our sins. We don't go to the table to become more justified because we don't justify anything. The Son has justified his people. So that's what the Lord's Supper is not in practice. Instead, I want to take a note from an old, old Baptist named Benjamin Keach, And Benjamin Keech was a 17th century Baptist, so in the 1600s, and we can be thankful for uh, Pastor Keach for the fact that we sing songs in a corporate worship service that are not found in the book of Psalms. It was Benjamin Keach in the 1600s that said, I think when the Bible says we should sing a new song, we should write songs. <laughs> and there was a huge controversy in the 1600s, and Benjamin Keach is the reason why we now can gather together as the people of God to sing songs to him in the service together. This is what Keach wrote in his Baptist Catechism on the question, what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to his appointment, his death is shown forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a corporeal and carnal manner, meaning physical, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. I think Keach gives us a biblical and robust definition of what the supper is. And I want to commend it to you. And so we're going to take apart some of those aspects of his definition and add some more And we're going to look at some different ways to view the Lord's Supper from our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll have to add some one extra point from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but we'll get there in a moment. So if you're taking more notes, here's a new section. Here's a new list. You ready? Number one, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal for those in Christ. The Lord's Supper is a covenant meal for those in Christ. Now we we understand this pretty intuitively, right? If it's the Lord's Supper, then who should take the Lord's Supper? The Lord's people. The Lord's people are the ones who are called to come and dine with him at his table. And so the big idea of this, we find in verse 25, when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When we gather together as the people of God to take the Lord's Supper, we are confessing once again our faith in Christ alone. That's what we're doing when we gather together to take the bread and the cup. We're saying to God and to one another that our faith is, is in Jesus. Our faith is in the new covenant. Our faith has been purchased by his blood. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're pledging our allegiance once again to the Lord who shed his blood for us. We confess our faith as his people, believing that he is the God who is faithful to his own covenant of grace. It's a covenant meal for those in Christ. Listen to this quote by Bobby Jameson. He says, by taking the elements, we solemnly signify our faith and commitment to him, confirming our union with Christ and with one another. We thereby communicate our commitment to this covenant as surely as if we spoke a verbal oath. So when we take the supper together, we are renewing our covenant commitment to God, and to one another. I mean, there's a reason why regularly when we take the Lord's Supper, we read the church covenant. It's because we've made this commitment to each other before God that we are his people, that we've been saved by grace through faith, that it's only because of the blood of Jesus that we can gather together as his people. All right, second image, number two, the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal to the death of Christ. It's a memorial meal. So we remember Jesus, and we do a wonderful job of this. We recognize, like the Israelites under the Old Covenant, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We're not just making that reaffirmation, we're remembering. We're taking ourselves back to the cross. We're taking ourselves back to remember that Jesus' body was really broken on a cross for you and for me. His sacrifice brought us peace his blood was poured out for us. His wounds brought our healing. And so we remember, we call it to mind. We fill the eyes of our hearts with the vision of the love of God poured out on us as he poured out his wrath on the sun. Now the idea of a memorial then is not like noticing a sign on the road that says something like MLK Memorial Highway something that we take a glance at and then move on with our life. No, for those of you who experience something like this, this kind of memorial is like going to the 9-11 memorial in New York City or like going to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. It's an embodied act of placing yourself at the event of importance. We remember that the Lord Jesus gave his life for his bride And as we learned earlier, when we remember the Lord, he comes to bless. Third image, the Lord's Supper is a thanksgiving meal for our life in Christ. When we gather together to celebrate what God has done, the right response of a redeemed people is worship. We worship. And that's just as real of an application as changing some kind of habit in your life. I mean, sometimes we read the Bible and we wanna know the application of what do I need to do? And perhaps the application is you need to do like the Israelites did in Exodus 24 and behold God. To, To fill your vision with him so that you might behold him in such a way that you treasure him as supremely glorious. And when you take the Lord's Supper, when I take the Lord's Supper, We're taking symbols of the body and blood of Jesus for our salvation. We're we're remembering that we have been united to Christ by faith in who he is and in what he's done. So when, when we gather together, we have thankful hearts. We have grateful hearts. We worship him and praise him with all the gratitude we can muster. We celebrate what God has done for us as his people and we show those in our midst those who eavesdrop on our family meal, that the gospel has produced in us something that the world cannot produce. When we gather together to take a piece of bread and a little cup, and we are filled with gratitude and thanksgiving, and it, and it fans the flame of worship and praise in our hearts, it will cause the world around us to wonder what is it? What is it about this meal that fills them up with so much thanksgiving? Well, it's because this meal means something. It means that we have life. It means that we are now in Christ. It means that we have reason to be thankful. Fourth image, the Lord's Supper is a family meal with the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is a family meal meal with the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is for the family of God. And we, we recognize there are two ways to talk about the family of God, right? We can talk about the family of God in all caps, and that's kind of thinking about the universal church from the beginning to the end, that you and I are a part of a grand church, a grand people of God who have been redeemed from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language, a people of God that we will eat with at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's another way to think about the family of God, and that's this particular congregation right here called Lakeview. The people that have covenanted together to worship God and to live life as holy believers together. And so when we gather as that family to take the Lord's Supper, it should call to mind the idea, and I pray, the reality of the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. That we, we know one another. We love one another. We pray for one another. We build one another up. We, we seek to outdo one another in showing honor. We bear up one another's burdens. We hold each other accountable. We treat one another like brothers and sisters. Now, Paul is clear in all throughout 1 Corinthians 11. When we take this meal, we take this meal as a gathered body. And when we take the bread and cup together, we notice what God has done and is doing in the lives of our brothers and sisters around us. So, so just picture this for a moment. When, when we hand out the bread and hand out the cup, we can take a, a view around this, this building, around this room, and say, God has done something in him and in her, and in him, and in him, and in her. And we, we celebrate that as the family of faith, just like we applaud and rejoice when we witness baptism, when all of us witnessing that baptism are affirming by our presence, yet God has done something in her. She was this way, and now she's this way. She was dead, and now she's alive. Every time we take the supper, we get to look around at our brothers and sisters and say it once again. God has done something in you and in me. He's made us a family. He's made us a family so that we might fellowship together and eat together and drink together and live together we are more strongly united together at the Lord's table. Fifth image. The Lord's Supper is a communal meal by the Spirit of Christ. Now, this point is going to cause you to take a page back from 1 Corinthians 11 to 1 Corinthians 10. When Paul is speaking about something very important that I think should be Brought to mind or brought out when we think about the Lord's Supper. We always, or we often rather, go to 1 Corinthians 11 as we should when we think about the Lord's Supper. But 1 Corinthians 11 is in context, right? And 1 Corinthians 10 should inform what we read in the next chapter. The Supper is a time when the people of God are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I as believers are united to Christ And we're united to Christ by faith. And we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that that faith is a gift given to us by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who unites us to Christ. And there at the table, at the Lord's Supper, that same Spirit unites us once again so that we might find spiritual nourishment at the table. So look again, look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We need to read this passage to get the context. In verse 16, Paul is rebuking some believers who are taking part in some pagan meals that were, where meat is being offered or meals are being offered to false gods. And notice what he says in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So notice what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying that when you go with these pagan meals who are offering these meals to false gods, what you're doing is you're participating with demons. You're sharing in communion with the demonic. And the way that he argues that point here in 1 Corinthians 10 is by saying when you take the cup, And when you take the bread, you are participating in Christ. You're communing and fellowshipping with Christ. Paul's point is that these meals are not merely physical rituals that take place. They have supernatural significance. So when we take the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, we come into real contact with Jesus. Real, however, does not mean physical. We heard just a few minutes ago. By the Spirit, we are brought into the presence of Jesus to be sustained and strengthened and sanctified. Remember, all of those meals in Scripture, God is present with his people to bless them. But this happens only when we receive the supper in faith, when we are believing in the gospel Believing that God himself is with us to bless us, to nourish us. The supper is not automatic. It's not magic. But it is something that God has given to us. The physical symbols of the bread and the cup are to remind us in a tangible way that our souls are being refreshed and nourished by the grace of Jesus. Like food and drink nourish our body, our Lord nourishes our soul. All right, last image. The Lord's Supper, big word, is an eschatological meal for the return of Christ. So back to 1 Corinthians 11. Remember in verse 26, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we take the supper, we remember together not just what he's done, but what he's going to do we remember when we take the bread and the cup, not just the sacrifice that he's made, but that he's coming again. Just as surely as Jesus came over 2,000 years ago in humility in Bethlehem, he will come again as the exalted Lord, the King of Kings, the bridegroom who will feast with his bride in fullness and glory. Just as sure as we celebrate the good news of Christmas, when we gather together to take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate that he's coming again. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance commanded by the Lord Jesus for the church to observe until he comes as a proclamation of his death. It's a renewal of the covenant pledge, a a reaffirmation of communion among the people of God. It's a means of grace in the lives of believers through the power of the Spirit. In this meal that we take, Jesus is present with his people to provide spiritual nourishment. It connects past, present, and future together as we enjoy the blessings of the Lord as his people. Now we just need to pause and notice that this is all of grace. I mean, why is it necessary that God would give his people this image? Why is it necessary that God would give His people embodied creatures like you and me with with bodies and souls? Why would He give us a meal, a visible word to see and to taste and to touch? Because God is gracious, it's who He is. And, and what he does for the creation that he loves so much is he condescends to us to give us something in a way that we can understand and handle. Listen to Robert Sherman. He says, God does not need sacraments or ordinances to be gracious. But practically speaking, the sacraments are needed by us who as embodied social and historical beings ordinarily become who we are through tangible and social interactions over time. To put it another way, the sacraments are not a necessity to God, but they are the way God has ordained to unite and sustain the body of Christ, the church with its living Lord through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. What a gift that we get to partake of, month after month, regularly as the people of God. All of these things that we might be reminded of. I want to conclude, though, by drawing your attention to Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11. We, we didn't read it. But he, he warns the people of God in Corinth to take the supper in a worthy manner. Now, the context there is that some believers in Corinth were using the Lord's Supper as a tool of division between the rich and the poor. You can read in this section for yourself. But their participation in the supper proclaimed the opposite of what the supper really means. Instead of fellowship, these believers were proclaiming division. Instead of communion with God for the faithful, they proclaimed superiority and inferiority among believers. Instead of remembering the death of Jesus, they remembered their own bellies. So here's what it means to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. You recognize that you are desperately needy for the grace of Jesus. You confess that this church is full of nothing but needy people who can do nothing apart from Christ. And you realize that just what you need for life and godliness is yours for the taking to receive from the Savior. In other words, to participate worthily in the supper, you must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, before we come to the table, we ought to reflect on how our lives might be failing to proclaim those truths, how our lives might be proclaiming disunity rather than unity, tension in our fellowship instead of love in our fellowship and we ought to go and make those things right. So now you know, every third Sunday morning, we're gonna take the supper. Every fifth Sunday night, we're gonna take the supper. So it's a summons for you and for me as the people of God to ask the Lord to search our heart and to see if there's any wicked way within us. That we have time to come to this family gathering, to come to this Lord's table, a feast together. But the call to the table is the same as Jesus' call for sinners. Come and find rest. Come and find nourishment. Come and find blessing. Come and find Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh, God in heaven, we give you praise. For you have seen fit to abundantly bless your people. Not only have you secured our salvation through the death of Christ, through his resurrection and ascension, but you have given us these signs and symbols. You've given us these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we witness the Lord's Supper partake, partook of the bread and the cup, Last week, as we witnessed baptism this week, we remember, we remember what you have done and we remember what you are going to do. And in that remembering, God, we know and we trust according to your word that you are with us and that you are ready to bless. But Lord, I pray that for those of us in this room who are not able to worthily receive the supper because they do not know you by grace through faith, I pray that they have heard this morning through our songs and through the word preached that the offer of life is theirs if they will come and find it. If, if we seek you, we will find you, your word tells us. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you might call some even now. We ask this in your name, amen. Well, that's all right. Thanks for worshiping with us today.